All right, let's open our Bibles. We're going to look at Second uh, Kings chapter 8 this evening. And I would like to read to you just the first six verses. As you recall, we're in this portion of Second Kings where we're looking at the life and the ministry of Elisha. Elijah has already passed from the scene. Now his young protege is taking the um, mantle, if you will, and continuing on serving God and serving God's people. And a prophet's job is never an easy one because whenever a prophet shows up on the scene, usually it's not just to be a pep rally to encourage everybody. When a prophet shows up, usually there's warning involved. And and for Israel and Judah, these northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes of Judah and uh, or, or Benjamin and, and, and uh, Judah, um, God was going to he, he brought prophets into their midst to warn them of impending judgment. Yes, impending judgment, because we know that the the northern ten tribes had fallen into idolatry from the very beginning. They, they started off that way, and they never recovered. They continued in their idolatry, in their worship of Baal, who was a false god of the Canaanites, and they continued worshiping Baal for several hundred years. They continued to worship, and, and God, as he always does, he warns his people. In fact, he warned them in the very beginning before he brought them into the promised land in Deuteronomy. He warned them that if they were going to do these things, there were going to be consequences. And, and I love the fact that God tells us in advance what he's going to do before he does it. I mean, think about what he's given us already. He's already shown us the end. Think of what a privilege that is for you and I. God told them in advance, if you do this, this is what I'm going to do. And God was faithful to his word. And I like that because what God has shown us here at the end of history, we call it eschatology or the study of last things, and we are living in the last days. As we've looked through Revelation and we've seen the things that are yet in the future coming up on the horizon, it ought to encourage you, and I hope it does, because there are so many things in our world right now, folks, that are lining up very carefully, and it's, it's, it's very obvious to me. And that's why when we went through Revelation, I was practically vibrating most of the time I was up there because I was so excited. Excited because you can see the things happening. If you're a student of the Word of God and you understand what we were going through as we looked at Revelation 13 and the, the beast and the false prophet and the mark of the beast, and then we looked at Revelation 17 and 18, this false religious system, this, this one-world government that it speaks very clearly of, and also this one-world economy that it spoke of yet in the future, and also this one-world religion that it spoke of in the future... All those three things specifically are coming together like glue right now. Can you see it? The one world economy, folks, it is on the doorstep. I'm not saying, I believe through the scripture that the church is going to be removed before that great tribulation period occurs. But folks, those things are already starting to form and they're very clear. They're very clear. And that means that, what that tells me is that the return of Christ for the church is soon. I don't know how soon. I could never place a date, and it would be foolish to do that. 
But I know Jesus said you'll know the seasons, and we're seeing these things come together. So we ought to be looking up because our redemption is drawing near. And if there is a time in your life, if you are on the fence about Christ, now is the time to no longer play any games, to get on your face and get real and right with God today. Don't wait until tomorrow. Do it now because you don't have tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But God tells us in advance. And he told his people. And the northern ten tribes, they continued in idolatry. And interestingly enough, God sends prophets to them. And we're going to see Elisha is one of them. In fact, he lives among them in that area in the northern ten tribes. And God is going to send him and to warn them and to try to release them of this Baalism, of this idolatry that they had gotten so entwined in. And, they, and God used this man. He used Elijah. He uses Elisha now to warn them of these things that are coming. And to hopefully root it out. Because God, like, like, a, like a cancer in a body, does God want you to be, you know, um, he doesn't want you to be continually eaten away by sin. And cancer is very similar to that. It starts small. There's just a little spot. And then left unchecked, it begins to grow. And pretty soon, it's, it's taking over a certain part of your body. And then it's starting to metastasize and go to other parts of your body. And sin is like that. And God is very serious about sin. So he sends a prophet like Elijah to warn, hey, You need to turn from this because if you don't, this is what's going to happen. And God loves his people. And he loves you. He loves you very much. And be encouraged by that because it's not all doom and gloom, folks. As you look around, I want to encourage you with all the craziness that's going around this world. If you're focused on that darkness, and I know this firsthand because I have focused a little too much on the darkness around me. And it does me no good. It doesn't bring me into a closer relationship with Christ. All it does is depress me and cause me to begin to doubt. Focus on Jesus. Focus on him. And let your heart be raptured. Get Worship him again. Get all the cobwebs off and all the fog and just, I can see clearly now. Let that be your heart too. So Elisha, notice verse, chapter 8, verse 1. We'll just look at the first six verses initially. It says, Then Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life. Remember the woman whose son that Elisha had restored to life? We'll look at that in a minute again. But notice, Then Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go you and your household, and stay wherever you can. For the Lord has called for a famine, and furthermore, it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the saying of the man of God, and she went with her household, because she was married as well, and they dwelt in the land of the Philistines seven years. And it came to pass at the end of seven years that the woman returned from the land of the Philistines And she went to make an appeal to the king for her house and for her land. And then the king talked with Gehazi. Remember Gehazi, Elisha's servant? The king talked with Gehazi. He talked 
with Gehazi. I'm doing that on purpose. He talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, please, all the great things Elisha has done. And now it happened, as he was telling the king how he had restored the dead to life, that there was the woman whose son he had restored to life, appealing to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman. This is her whom Elisha restored to life. This is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. And so the king appointed a certain officer for her, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the proceeds of the field from the day that she left the land until now. Now, I don't know if you remember... But notice that the king, who we believe is King Joram, he was the king of the northern tribes. He's talking with Gehazi. Does that sound a little funny to you? I don't know if you remember, but look back a couple chapters at the end of chapter 5. Just thumb back a couple chapters. And I'm bringing this up for a reason. At the end of chapter 5, remember when Gehazi, when Naaman had come and was healed, Naaman the Syrian, the captain of the guard of the Syrian army, he had leprosy, so he comes to Elisha, Elisha heals him. Naaman being so grateful and, and thankful for what God had done, he tries to offer Elisha, a reward. Elisha, as a man of God, says, hey, I didn't, I didn't do this. God is the one who did it. I can't receive anything from you. And remember, Gehazi, as, as the montage, uh, Naaman and his montage, as they were leaving and going back to Syria, Gehazi catches up with them quickly and makes up a false tale that there's people coming and they need more money and stuff like this. And so Naaman is like, you know what? I was willing to give it all, but, you know, take, take, you know, a couple of bars of, you know, this and a couple bars of gold and silver and some changes of clothes. And, and Elisha, when, as Gehazi came back, Elisha knew that Gehazi had gone after and received those things. And he said, is this a time for us to receive reward? And as a result, leprosy will cling to you for the rest of your life and to your, your family. And so he had leprosy from that day forward. Now, that happened at the end of chapter 5, didn't it? So now we're in chapter, in chapter 8, and we find out that Gehazi is talking with the king. Now, what happened here? Well, very simply this. Do you remember when we were going through the Gospels? We are going through the Gospels. You remember I had mentioned this book. Um, it's called A Harmony of the Gospels by A.T. Robertson. If you don't have a copy of this and you're uh, a Bible nerd like I am, um, I love this book because it puts all the Gospels in chronological order and it really helps, it enriches your, your time in the Gospels. It certainly does that. Well, many people have put their hand to this and have come up to similar conclusions as A.T. Robertson, but there was a gentleman uh, by the name of William Day Crockett who put together a book, and this is the only one that I know of. Um, it's, it's called A Harmony of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. And he attempts to do, and he does actually, he takes the first and second Samuel and first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles and he, he puts them in a chronological form. And you may um, have already seen tonight as we have been going through this 
that something chronologically is not right here because if the king, Joram, is talking personally with Gehazi, the king wouldn't be talking to him if he had leprosy. So this event, the bottom line is, prior to um, uh, chapter 8 here, or or this event that we're looking at um, happened prior to what happened in 2 Kings 5 that we just read. Does that make sense? So these things, as we read them, especially in the life of Elisha right now, these things aren't going to be in, 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 a, in a specific order. As you read them, it's not going to be in chronological order. So that's the reason why, because it wouldn't make sense for a king to be speaking with a man who's loaded with leprosy. <laughs> he just wouldn't do it. And so, um, and prior to this, you might even want to make a note to this, before we actually dive into this, um, prior to this chapter, chapter 8, um, specifically verses 1 and 2, the entire events of Second Kings chapter 4 took place. So if you really want to read this in a, in, a, in a way that will make sense to you, and I, and I think it will, especially if you look at chapter 4, um, and in fact, the order of Second Kings 4 is, uh, is uh, interesting as well, because as we read it in the Bible, the sections of it aren't in chronological order either. And I'd like to just give you that order right now so that you can go back and read chapter 4 in the right order and then come directly into chapter 8. Does that make sense? I don't want to make this tedious, but I think this will be helpful. So um, if you were to look at uh, 2 Kings chapter 4 and the first 17 verses, so verses 1 through 17, and then uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 38 through 44, and then finally 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 18 through 37, and then immediately after that, is where we come into chapter 8 right here. And remember, in 2 Kings chapter 4, 18 through 37, that very last section was where Elisha, remember, the woman and her husband had built a, uh, an upper room for Elisha as he was itinerating through Israel. Um, he stopped by their house a lot. And so she went to her husband as a woman, a family of means, evidently, and they decided to build this upper room for Elisha with a table and chairs and a bed and a lamp, and whenever he would come by, he would have a place to stay. It was a very kind gesture. Well, that, that, that's where that happened in chapter uh, 4, verse 18 through 37. And remember, in that same section of Scripture, the woman's son had fallen ill and died, and Elisha prayed for him and uh, healed him ultimately. And it was right on the heels of that, right on the heels of 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 18 through 37, speaking of this Shunammite woman whose son was raised from the grave. Immediately on the heels of this, we go right into chapter 8. And it makes total sense if you follow the chronology, because then what does it say? Then Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life. Follow me? And so it'll make a lot of sense if you read it in that order. So Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go in your household and stay wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine. And furthermore, it will come upon the land for seven years. So this Shunammite woman was from Shunem. It's a city in the 
uh, upper in the northern part of uh, just a little bit north of the central part of Israel. In fact, it's um, just southwest of the Sea of Galilee in uh, the Valley of Jezreel. This, this town called Shunem, and a woman being from Shunem was called a Shunemite. And so this was the path that Elisha would often travel. And so the woman arose and did according to the saying of the man of God. So Elisha gives this woman who has been very kind to him, her and her husband and her family, giving them a heads up on what God is about to do. And I think that's really sweet of him, and it shows the mercy of God too. And um, so the woman arose, did according to the saying of the man of God, and she went with her household and dwelt in the land of the Philistines seven years. Notice that God didn't instruct her where to go. He didn't tell her to go to the land of the Philistines, but that's where she went. And um, in verses 1 and 2, the Lord gives to Elisha, again, what is about to come to pass. And he gives this insider information, if you will, to this woman and her husband because they have been so kind and generous to him. And I like that. You know, God doesn't, um, he always remembers kindness and acts of kindness and love, doesn't he? He, he? he remembers those things. I believe that for every one of us, the, and the Bible tells us in, in Revelation that there's a book. And I believe all of our deeds are written in that book. And so he tells her that there's going to be a, a lean time, a famine for seven years. And, and this is not unusual, is it, for God to give to his servants an understanding of something yet future. It's called prophecy. And certainly we saw that in Genesis chapter 41. Remember when God spoke to Pharaoh in a dream in, 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 in Genesis chapter 41, beginning in verse 14, God himself spoke to Pharaoh, this pagan Gentile, gave him a dream, two dreams in fact, and then Joseph comes and he interprets those dreams and, and Joseph tells Pharaoh, God has told you what he's about to do. There's going to be seven years of plenty, and then there's going to be seven years of famine. And he tells them this. And ultimately, God gives this information to be glorified. God is going to be glorified in and through the life of Joseph. He's going to be glorified in the life through Pharaoh as well. But now God was going to do a similar thing, but instead of there being seven years of plenty before the seven years of famine, he's going to skip right to the seven years of famine. <laughs> and perhaps because of the sin of the people, because often God would get the attention of his people by bringing about famines or droughts. He does. God would do this when the people of Israel were engaging in idolatry. He would use the famine or the drought as a means to chasten his people. Yes, chasten, God chastens those whom he loves, doesn't he? But you've got to understand something, that when God chastens, with the chastening, there is a, uh, the idea of chastening is chastening with, with the idea of learning. There's a difference between being chastened by God and being judged by God. Chastening means he's causing some things to be uncomfortable for you to get your eyes on him and to cry out to him. A judgment, there's no crying out. It's just a pile of ash. <laughs> he judges, right? 
And we ought not to be surprised when God chastens us too, right? And, and nobody likes that. God has chastened me, and he, I know that I've got more chastening in my future. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, And have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons? He says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he does what? He chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which we are all become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they, speaking of our fathers, indeed for a few days they chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of what? His holiness. Now no chastening Seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Can anybody relate to that? Anybody been chastened by the Lord? <laughs> I've been chastened by the Lord, and he, I know he loves me because he does. If God never chastened me, I'd be really nervous. I mean, unless you're a really good person, maybe you haven't been chastened, but I, I'm not a good person. <laughs> I wasn't a good person even before I came to Christ. Scoundrel, actually. And God chastened me, especially as a believer, he's chasing me. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, what does it do? It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Notice, have been trained by it. Do you see what it's for now? It's to be trained. You're trained by the chastening. Big difference between that and judgment. Most people will go through the chastening. God is judging me. No, he's just chastening you. If you were judged, you'd be a pile of ash. <laughs> Follow me? But he doesn't need to destroy you. In fact, he wants to bless you. As believers, he chastens us. But there's coming a day for the unbeliever that they will be judged for eternity. And we don't like to think about that, but that's the truth. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 5, it says, You know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord God chastens you. In Revelation 3, verse 19, As many as I love, he wrote to the church, I rebuke and I chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent, meaning turn away from our sins. And God would use this famine or this drought as a means to chasten his people. In Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 5, says, Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. And remember, Ezekiel's writing to Jerusalem um, many years later after the place that we're looking at now in 2 Kings 5, but God speaks to him to encourage his people and also tell them what's coming. For thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I've set her in the midst of the nations and all the countries around her. She has rebelled against my judgments by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries that are around her. For they have refused my judgments and they have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, 
Because you have multiplied disobedience more than the nations that are around you, have not walked in my statutes, nor kept my judgments, nor even done according to the judgments of the nations that are around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I, even I, am against you and will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And I will do among you what I have never done and the like of which I will never do again because of all your abominations. And then later in that same chapter, in verse 16, he says, When I send against them the terrible arrows of famine, which shall be for destruction, which I will send to destroy you, I will increase the famine upon you and cut off your supply of bread. So I will send against you famine and wild beasts, and that they will bereave you. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. And that's hard to... Listen to, isn't it? But God even chastens his people. He does. One more scripture reference here, and it's one of my favorites. It's in 1 Kings chapter 8. Remember when David had passed from the scene and Solomon had built the temple, God had given to Solomon, uh, through David, all the materials, the blueprint, all of the materials, the gold, the silver, the bronze, the wood, the colors, the fabrics, everything to build this temple. God gave to David everything because David was a, was a man whose hand was bloody because of all the wars that he had done. And David wanted to build a house, but he said, David, your son is going to build a house. And David's like, well, if I can't build a house, then I'm going to make everything ready for my son so that when he's old enough and he takes my place, all I've got to do is command him to do it, and he's going to do it, and everything is there. And all the, work, all the workers and all the people will be there to help him build this temple. And so the time comes that the, the, the temple is finished. And so Solomon, in this big display with all the people of Israel, and I would encourage you to read the entire chapter of 1 Kings, but he says this in verse 37, he says, when there is famine in the land, when there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land, God, in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands toward this temple, then hear in heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive and act and give to everyone according to his ways, whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to their fathers. And so here it is. Now God is allowing this famine. And unfortunately, it didn't produce repentance. But God is faithful to warn, and he's doing it here in this verse as well. And notice in verse 2, back in our text tonight, it says, the woman arose and she did according to the saying of the man of God. And notice, she went with her household and dwelt in the land of the Philistines. And why the land of the Philistines? 
We know that that's the land of the enemies of God. They're a perennial enemy of God. Well, the coastal plains of the land of the Philistines were not subject to the droughts and the famines that were common among other parts of Israel that were at higher in elevation. Plus, they were near the sea uh, or the Mediterranean Sea. So there, there wasn't as, as, as difficult of a time in the land of the Philistines. But notice... Uh, that now seven years pass by, seven years. Notice what happens between verses 2 and 3, or look at verse 3. It came to pass at the end of seven years. So do you see what happened at the end of verse 2? There was seven years of this, and then now the next verse goes, and at the end of the seven years. So there is a lot of things that happened in that seven years, wouldn't you agree? Just between two verses, we have seven years that have gone by just like that. And you can put a little arrow in between verses 2 and 3, and you can write in uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, the whole chapter. And many other, um, by the way, that's not the only chapter, but you can put uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, and many other events are in between those two verses. So when you read this again, when you get to chapter or verse 2 and you read at the end of chapter 2, skip over to Second Kings chapter 6 and read all of it. And then there was some other things that happened too, which I didn't want to bog down into that, although I, I'm probably doing that now. <laughs> um, but some things happened in between those verses. Notice verse 3, it came to pass at the end of seven years. Seven years have gone by. The woman nurtured that the woman, I'm sorry, the woman returned from the land of the Philistines. And notice what happened. She went to make an appeal to the king for her house and for her land. Evidently, when this drought or this famine had hit the land, and, and she decided to leave with her family. And in that seven-year period, evidently, someone, an individual, or perhaps even the king of Israel himself, took ownership of that land and over that whole area. And so now she goes back to King Joram of the king of the north. And it says that then the king, verse 4, talked with Gehazi. So the king just happens to be talking with Gehazi. And remember, this event took place before 2 Kings chapter 5 because Gehazi had leprosy back in that chapter. <laughs> so it, this happened before then. The king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, and, and notice what he says. Tell me, please, all the great things that Elisha has done. And so this king that is referred to is Jehoram. Um, he reigned from 852 to 841 B.C. And I want to warn you about something that you can get really, um, it can take you by surprise. At this time in Israel's history, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom both had a king by the name of Jehoram. Sometimes you'll see Joram, it's a shortened term or shortened name for Jehoram. And guess what? They reigned at the same exact time, from 852 to 841 B.C. So as you read through this passage and, and, and you go continued, take special note of which king they're referring to. If it's the king of Judah, then you know it's the king of the south. If it's the king of, the, of Israel, it's speaking of the king, kingdom of the north. Follow me? 
And the Bible is very clear and makes, makes sure that you understand which Jehoram or Joram he's speaking of. Because if you don't have that understanding, these, these events are going to be like mental gymnastics for you. Okay? And so notice at the end of verse 4, she says, tell me, or he says, uh, the king does, tell me all the great things Elisha has done. Now remember who is speaking here. The king of Israel, the idolater, the one who worships Baal. And now he's saying, tell me all the great things that God has done in Elisha's life. Isn't that interesting? And I love this because notice the curiosity of the king concerning what God was doing in Elisha. Even though most of those around the king, including the king himself, were idolaters, there was nothing special or great going on with their idols and with their false gods. But the king wanted to know what God, notice, he wanted to know what God was doing in the life of Elisha. And now it happened, verse 5, as he was telling the king how he had restored the dead to life, that there was the woman, this very woman, who's coming back now after seven years being in the land of the Philistines. She comes back. She's there at the, right there at the king, right as Gehazi is telling the story about her and her son, how God had raised him from the dead through Elisha. And so the king is like blown away. This is what you call a divine appointment. A divine appointment. A divine appointment, you know, there are no coincidences with God. There are only God incidences. You follow me? And they're divine appointments. And what may seem to you as being an interesting coincidence may be a divine appointment. And divine appointments are rarely convenient for you. Rarely are they convenient for you. I remember... uh, Sometime, I think it was last year, uh, maybe in a year and a half, a year and a half now, but I, we were driving and we were going to a store. We had to get there pretty quickly. And I, it was a furniture store, long story, but we're driving and I forget something at home. So I got to come back knowing that I'm kind of under the gun because we wanted to get there before they closed. And my car runs out of gas. So I'm like, I thought you loved me, God, and now this. So my car just shuts off, and I'm coasting down the ramp to, you know, and then I couldn't go anywhere. The thing just stopped, and so I, you know, I finally figured out embarrassingly that I wasn't keeping my eye on the gas needle. And so I call the police, they come, and wouldn't you know it, the guy who comes is a rookie cop. He's a rookie police officer, and we had this really interesting you know, talk, and I started talking to him about the Lord. And he's listening to me, and I'm encouraging him for all the work that he does and how they, 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 very, they very seldom do they get thank yous. Very seldom do they get somebody telling them, you know, thank you for what you do. You know, you put your life on the line just by pulling somebody over in the, in the, on the highway. You know, because my parent, my whole family was in law enforcement. So I'm very thankful for what he does. So we had this great conversation, and it turned salty, and I was able to share with him the Lord. And I thought to myself, this was a divine appointment. I didn't know it at the time. I, I saw my inconvenience of running out of gas as just a big drag, and little did I realize that God was creating a divine appointment, and it was not convenient for me. And that's okay, because if I belong to him, doesn't he have the right to intervene if, I, if I'm willing? And sometimes even if I'm not willing, he has the right to intervene if I'll see it. Has that happened to you? So many times, 
our, our own divine appointments come when we are completely unaware, and that's why it's called a divine appointment. I didn't plan it. God did. But be open to those things in your life and begin to recognize these opportunities and capitalize on them for the kingdom of God. When you run into those things like that, could it be that God has got a divine appointment waiting for you, and are you open to see it? I wasn't initially open to see it, but as I started talking, the light bulb went off, and I'm like, okay, Lord, I'm in this, and I'm going to give this guy the full gospel, <laughs> you know, because I knew that this, there was a reason for this. So God's going to make sure, he's going to make sure to bless this dear woman who had blessed Elisha. I mean, think of it. They, they spent money to build an addition onto their house so that when he came by, he could have a place to stay. And now in her need, as she's coming back from this drought after seven years, she just wants her house and her land back. And as she's walking to the king, there's the king talking to Gehazi, Elisha's servant, telling him everything, a divine appointment. It can't get any more divine than that. That, that was no coincidence. That was a God incidence. That was a divine appointment. So verse 6, and when the king asked the woman, so he's like, did this really happen to your son? Yeah, here he is. Look at him. And the kid could tell you, yeah, I had a pain in my, in my head and I ran out from the field and I went up to my mom's lap and I died. And I woke up and there was Elisha looking at me. The Lord brought me back to the life, brought back to life. He used me. Used him to touch my life. So when the king asked the woman, she told him. And so the king appointed a certain officer. Notice how good God is. And remember, all of this is happening through a pagan idol-worshipping king, Jehoram. Or Joram. He's doing this for this woman. Did God really do that to you? And here he is given her not only her land and her, her house back, but all, of the, all the proceeds from the land I don't know how he did this, but he, he gave her back uh, all the, the, the vintage of those seven years. He multiplied that to her somehow and gave her those things. So she was doing really good. What an amazing thing. Do you think God loves and cares for those who care for others? He does. Here's a great example of God just being generous to the generous person. You know, are you a generous person? Are you the kind of person that, 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 that has a giving heart? Don't ever underestimate what God may do in your life because sometimes when you give, God's like, you're not going to outgive me because I want you to bless somebody else. And when you do, I've got blessings for you. No, I don't want to get onto some kind of trip like they do in the televangelist saying, you just drop, you know, $100 in the plate tonight in cash. Actually, 250s would be good. And next week, you'll get a check for $10,000. And plus, we'll throw in a hanky that I use for my forehead. We'll put that in with the, you know, and you'll, you'll get that in the mail. No, that's not what I'm talking about. The blessing, you may get it on this earth. You may just have the satisfaction of being used by God, which to me is reward enough. Have you ever given somebody something and it really blessed them and it was like, oh my gosh, totally unexpected, and they're just like blown away. Isn't that a good feeling? That's why Jesus said it is better to give than to receive. And that's a good thing to consider as we come upon the Christmas season. Everyone's so, you know, many people, not everybody, but many are thinking, what am I going to get? What am I going to get? You know, and rather, as a Christian, we got to say, what can I do to give? 
and not worry about myself, but what can I give? Jesus wasn't worried about what he could get out of it. He gave everything. He gave his life. But he gained a bride that he's going to present spotless to his father. How's that? That's what he gained. So notice, after verse 6 here, the events of 2 Kings chapter 5 took place. And that was when Naaman's leprosy was healed and Gehazi's greed was exposed. So immediately after, uh, after verse 6 here, uh, the events of 2 Kings chapter 5 took place. So, so notice in verse 7, now it says the death of Ben-Hadad. Now remember, Ben-Hadad is a title. It's not the name. His first name is not Ben, and his second name is not Hadad. Hadad was the name of their god. It was an idol. It was an idol of, of, the, of the Gentiles. Hadad. So Ben means the son of Hadad. And so it, it's a title. And there were at least uh, some uh, scholars say that there may have been three different men who were titled with Ben-Hadad of Syria. And um, I won't get into the minutiae of that because it's, it's not really edifying, but it, it is interesting. So Ben-Hadad, the, the, the son of Hadad, which is their false god. So Elisha, notice, he went to Damascus. We don't know why he went to Damascus. And notice, Ben-Hadad, king of, of Syria, was sick, and it was told him, saying, the man of God has come here. And so Ben-Hadad has, has heard about him. Remember, um, uh, Elisha healed Naaman, Ben-Hadad's servant, right? Um, if it's the same Ben-Hadad, we don't know, but it, it, the captain of his guard, he remembers that. And certainly, even if he was his son, he remembers that event happening, and it was told him, saying, the man of God has come here. He's here in Damascus. And so the king said to Hazael, take a present in your hand and go to meet the man of God and inquire. Notice, I would have you underline this in verse 8. He says, and inquire of the Lord. Underline the word Lord because that is very significant. Because that word literally means in the Hebrew, Yahweh or Jehovah. So basically what this pagan king this pagan Gentile king, what he's really saying is, take a present in your hand and go ask him, saying, shall I recover from this disease? I've heard about what you did for Naaman, and I remember that. Now I'm the one in need. Would you please pray to Jehovah, inquire of your God, not my God, because I've been sitting around here with all these magicians and all these guys who are on my payroll, and they're nothing but a bunch of deadbeats. They're lead weights, and nothing is happening. They've, they've cut themselves. They've tried to do all these things, trying to get me to get well, and nothing's happening. But now, huh, I want to find out what the Lord, Jehovah, I want to find out what he can do. Inquire of him, would you please? And don't go empty-handed, Hazael. Take 40, notice. <laughs> Take with you 40 camel loads. 40 camelodes. So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him of every good thing of Damascus. 40 camel loads. That's a lot of stuff, folks. That's a lot of spices. That's a lot of uh, uh, sausages. I'm only kidding here. But, you know, that's a lot of stuff that he's bringing to the man of God. And he came and he stood before him and he said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? Notice what Hazael is saying. He's coming to this Israeli prophet and saying, your son, Ben-Hadad. 
He's appealing to this prophet. Maybe buttering him up, I don't really know. But he, look who's in control now. Is it Ben-Hadad, the great king of Syria? Or is it this humble man from Israel? This prophet? Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you saying, shall I recover from this disease? And isn't it interesting that when people are near death, all of their idols, their false crutches, they come to nothing. And they ultimately come to the feet of Jesus, many of them. Some don't. Some die angry and, and fearful. And there's nothing worse than being, seeing somebody on their deathbed with no hope at all and knowing that they're going to hell and they are fine with that. I've never experienced that. But I've heard of people who have. And it's really horrible. And the king of Assyria is going, you know what, my, my time is coming and I know it. And there's only one God that I know who can save me, who can heal me anyway. I'm not sure if this man knew the Lord or not, but he certainly got healed, right? So Elisha said to him, Go and say to your master, you shall certainly recover. However, the Lord has shown me that, you will, that he will surely die. What? You're going to get healed, but you're going to die. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. That sounds like a, a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? Then he, Elisha, verse 11, set his countenance. Notice, and he's talking with Hazael, and he looks right at Hazael, and he says, However, the Lord has shown me that he will really die. And Elisha stares down Hazael, and he looks directly at him. Have you ever had somebody stare you down? Or have you stared somebody down? And you look right at their eyes. Maybe you're angry with them, or maybe you're just trying to get a point across, and there comes an awkward moment when they're like, okay, what's happening here? <laughs> and Hazael said, why? And, and then notice, Elisha set his countenance in a stare at Hazael until he was ashamed, and the man of God wept. He, he looked at him sincerely, diligently, and then he just starts breaking down in tears. And then Hazael said, verse 12, why is my Lord weeping? And he answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire. Their young men you will kill with the sword. And you will dash their children and rip open the women with child. And we know that Hazael would do this. Later on, we're going to read later on that he would actually follow through on this thing. But notice what Hazael says in verse 13. He says, but what is your servant? Am I a dog that I would do these, this gross thing? And Elisha said, the Lord has shown me also that you will become king over Syria. Come again? <laughs> yeah, you're going to be the king of Syria. And notice Hazael didn't even know his own heart. You know, when he's saying this to Elisha, do you think I'm a dog that I would do this gross thing? And Elisha is just staring right into his soul, and he knows what's, what's, what's in him. And one of two things are either happening. Either Hasael didn't know his own heart, or the worst case scenario, he knew what he was all about. He knew the evil in his own heart, and he was just pretending that these things weren't true of him. But notice what happens in verse 14. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master, the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, who said to him, what did Elisha say to you? Am I going to get better? And he answered, he told me that you would surely recover. 
Notice he didn't tell him, but he also told me that you're going to die. He only told him half of it. He didn't tell the king the whole story because Ben-Hadad's story was going to end in just a few hours, and he didn't even know it because of what happened in verse 15. But it happened on the next day that Hazael took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face so that he died, and Hazael reigned in his place. So Hazael smothered Ben-Hadad to death. Shalmaneser III, who was the king of Assyria, says this of Hazael. He said, Hazael, a son of nobody, seized the throne. He was a son of nobody, and yet here he seizes the throne, not even aware of the own evil in his heart, which is unfortunately the truth of many. And yet God was already looking in the soul of this man and telling him the things that he was going to do. That can't be me. I would never do such an awful thing like that. And boy, I tell you, isn't it crazy? We don't even know the the things that we would do. And I'm finding that I, I try not to ever say, oh, I would never do that because I've been in situations, circumstances have come about where I would say that I would never do that and then it does. And then I'm like, Lord, you're so true. I should have no confidence in anything of myself because I betray my, who I think I really am. Oh, if that happened to me, I would do this. And Well, let's see it happen. And then God, at some point down the road, when you're least expecting it, brings about that circumstance and you don't do it because you don't know your heart. I don't know my own heart. And so he kills Ben-Hadad. And we will see later on in 2 Kings, he's going to be one of the most murderous men. And it's a horrible thing. Horrible trail of blood he led. But notice in verse 16, it says, Jehoram, it says, Now in the fifth year of Jehoram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, pay attention to the king of Israel. This is the Joram, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat, having been king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, began to reign as king of Judah. So now we have... Uh, Joram in the north and um, Joram in the south. And they both reigned um, at the same time, both Jehorams. And Jehoram was the son of Jehoshaphat, the king of Israel. Jehoshaphat reigned from 873 to 848 B.C. And then Jehoram reigned from 853 to 841 B.C. And so actually what happened was, is as Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, as he began to get sick, his son became co-regent with him for about three years. He became co-regent with Jehoshaphat, his father, until Jehoshaphat died. And then Jehoram would... um, remain on the throne. And it says in verse 17, he was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked, notice, in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab. Who was Ahab? Was he a king of the northern tribes or the king of the southern tribes? Ahab. He was the king of the northern tribes, right? An easy way to think of it, I always get Ahab and Ahaz confused. Think alphabetically. Ahab, B comes before Z, doesn't it? So Ahab in the north, Ahaz in the south. That's one way, a mnemonic device that I use to get Ahab and Ahaz together and know where they came from. But it was Ahab. He did exactly. He was a king of Judah, but he was doing the sins of those in, in the northern ten tribes. And notice what it says. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife. 
So this Jehoram of, of Judah is now marrying the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And her name, it says, was Athaliah. And notice what it says about Jehoram of the south. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. It used to be that only those in the northern ten tribes were the evil ones, and then those in Judah and Jerusalem, you know, most of them were really good kings, but, you know, there was only a handful out of all the kings, maybe six, seven of kings that were really good. The rest of them learned from the, the idolatry of their northern brothers and sisters, and they became idolatrous as well. That's why God led the northern ten tribes away into captivity first. Remember, through Assyria in 722? And then it would be 150 or so years more, and then the Judah and Benjamin wouldn't repent of their sins. They did the same exact thing, and God's like, well, I'm going to take care of that too. So he allows Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar to come in 606 to lay siege to Jerusalem for 20 years and, and bringing deportments of Jews and bringing them captive, and then finally in 580 or, uh, 586, B.C., they set the place on fire. And now they're all captive. And there's a handful staying in Jerusalem, but most were led away to captive, to Babylon. But notice that this Jehoram of Judah, he marries Ahab and Jezebel's daughter, Athaliah. Do you think she was a good girl? Think about the home that, that she grew up in, Ahab and Jezebel. You've heard of that two duo, right? They're, they were like one of the worst couples in the history of the world. Idol-worshipping, horrible people. And their daughter was no different, unfortunately. And so what does a good Jewish boy like Jehoram do? He marries the demon-worshipping daughter of her mom and dad. He marries her. Not a very wise decision. Not a godly union for sure. Doesn't it tell us in Corinthians 15 verse 33, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. And here he is engaging in this, marrying this woman, becoming one with this idolater. And it was just a a litmus test, really, of what was happening in Judah anyway. They had already started to slip very badly into idolatry, and so it's no surprise. And so verse 19, it says, Yet the Lord would not destroy Judah for the sake of his servant David. Remember, and it says, as he promised him, he promised, God promised David to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. Do you remember? You might want to write in your margin of your Bible after verse 19, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 through 16. This is what we call the Davidic covenant that God had made to David. And let me just read it to you. Because God is remembering the promise that he made to David a long time ago. And now he's thinking, you know what? You deserve judgment, Jehoram. You deserve judgment, but I am not going to judge you yet. And and I'm not going to remove you from Jerusalem because I made a promise to David. And here's the promise in chapter, verse 12 of 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled, God says to David... And you rest with your fathers. I will set up your seed after you who will come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, immediately he's talking about Solomon, but even further beyond Solomon, who is he speaking about? Jesus, exactly. I will be his father, and he will be my son. If he commits iniquity, speaking of Solomon, I will chasten him with the rod of men and the blows of the son of men. But my mercy, notice, shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And notice, here it is, verse 16. What a wonderful promise. And your house and your kingdom, David, shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And you may be wondering, well, where is his kingdom today? There's no one on the throne in Israel right now, but there is. <laughs> Jesus is in heaven, and he's coming back, and he's going to take his rightful place on the throne of his father, David, fulfilling this Davidic covenant literally in the future, right? Wonder, wonderful, isn't it? Notice in verse 20, and then we'll finish up here, uh, the next couple of verses. Actually, we got a few here. We'll go through them. So, um, and in his days, Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. So Edom was a vassal of Judah, but their rebellion was due to their continued idolatry and turning away from the Lord. So verse 21, so Joram went to Zaire and all his chariots with them, and he arose by night and attacked the Edomites who had surrounded him and the captains of the chariots. And the troops fled to their tents. Thus, Edom has been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day. And Libna revolted at that time as well. Now the rest of the acts of Joram, this, this king of the, of the north, and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Remember, Chronicles is all about the kings of Judah. And so Jehoram rested in his, with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Zion, that little piece of land right to the south uh, east of, of the Temple Mount that you can go there today and see where, Dave, where Zion was. They've unearthed it. They, they, you can go there and visit. And you can see where David's palace used to be and everything was. It's all there. I've seen it twice so far. In fact, I was there um, in, in 2011, and they were just uncovering it. They were just getting to that point where things were starting to come. And then the last time I went in 2020, uh, seen the whole thing you know, pretty much excavated as much as they could do, and it's, it's amazing. That, that, was, that was Mount Zion. That's where the Ark of the Covenant rested before they built the temple. <laughs> and then they took it from this place called Zion, and they took it up the hill to the temple. Amazing, amazing place. And David was all over that place. And Solomon certainly running around as a little boy. So verse 25, it says, In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, notice king of Israel. So the Joram in the north, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign Notice, in the twelfth year of Jehoram, or Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. So remember, you got two different kingdoms. Joram, now in, uh, in the, in, of Israel, and Ahaziah now, the son of Jehoram, because uh, Jehoram died, and he began to reign. And Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned for one year in Jerusalem. And notice, his mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. So notice, in power for literally one year, but notice how quickly they were infected with the idolatry. 
So he walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did evil in the sight of the Lord, like, notice, the house of Ahab, for he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. So he really didn't change at all. And he went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to war against Hazael, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead. Remember, Ramoth-Gilead is that piece of land on the um, eastern side of the, uh, of the Jordan River, closer to Syria. And so Syria naturally grabs a hold of that land, and now uh, Ahaziah is now teaming up with Joram, the king of Israel, to go against Hazael, king of Syria, um, and at Ramoth Gilead, and the Syrians wounded Joram. So the king Joram went back to Jezreel to recover from his wounds, which the Syrians had inflicted on him at Ramah. And when he fought against he- when he fought against Hazael, king of Syria, and Ahaziah the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram the son of Ahab in Jezreel because he was sick. And it's kind of an interesting thing to see. You know, just the, the, the kings, you know, Judah should never have gotten tied up with those kings in the, in the north. They really should have just broken and made, them th- made themselves separate. But you see in instances like this, and we've seen it before in previous chapters, where they started to form alliances against bigger enemies. So instead of, you know, Israel going against Syria, now Israel and Judah would both go. And a lot of times, you know, God was saying, Judah, stay out of it. This is not your battle. And yet they did it, and it got them into some trouble. And some kings have have died as a result of that, early, premature. And so so that is all we're going to look at tonight. We'll we'll look at uh, chapter 9 the next time we get together. But um, I just love this. This part in the first six verses is just so interesting to me, just the, the divine appointment. Don't be surprised by divine appointments. Embrace them when you get them because usually if, there's a, if you're being inconvenienced somehow, the chances are God might be just breaking through your busy schedule to do something with your life, to... Uh, cause you to speak something to somebody. And so as you read those first six verses over again, just consider that. And consider your day tomorrow as you, uh, because you know, you can, you can look at these things in your life as petty disturbances or things that are just like gnats flying around your head. They, they become just annoying. Or you can look at those things that happen outside of you that are vying for your attention or interrupting something you're doing. And all of a sudden you realize, hmm, I wonder if the Lord wants to do something different today. (laughs) Would you be open to it? And sometimes I can be so caught up in my own schedule of things that I forget that God wants to do something and use me. And he wants the thrill. He wants me to enjoy the thrill of being used by him to minister to somebody else. If that hasn't happened to you, I pray that it does. Because you'll realize and, and I'll, I will realize again and again, Lord, these interruptions probably are, you're designing them for a reason. You're allowing them for a reason. Help me to know what it is. And help me not to get angry when it does happen. But just to go with you with it. Just flow with it. Does that make sense? Let's stand and let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for this, um, this chapter tonight. Lord, we thank you for just the, the history. Lord, we thank you for the many things that we can learn from it, Lord. And Lord, just as you worked in the lives of these Old Testament saints, Lord, you are working in our lives. And Lord, you're not a respecter of persons. You, you don't change. You, you, you've never changed. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Lord, and these people are no different than us, Lord. They had lives. They had busy lives. And they, they did things. And, and yet, God, you, you show us time and time again that we're really no different. We want the same things. We desire the same things. And Father, help us to desire the right things. Lord, we know that many of them deserved or, or um, desired evil things, and they became idolaters. And Lord, we know that today that's true as well. There are idolaters all around us, and hopefully none of us are one of those. Lord, just and that idol doesn't have to be a, a, a statue of gold on, on, the, on the mantle of the fireplace, Lord. It could be a person, it could be a car, it could be a job, it could be a skill. Lord, it could be anything that we put more important than you. And so, Lord, have your way with us tonight and just break us of those things and help us to come to you with open hearts, Lord. So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.